Welcome to Nextworks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Hi, everyone. Today, I'll be talking to Mike Siegel. Mike has spent 25 years working in the global startup ecosystem as an entrepreneur and an innovation advisor, including as founder of seven companies. He is a partner at 500 Startups, a fintech fund and fintech accelerator. And he is the co-founder of Upside Partners, which helps organizations innovate through the application of startup and VC best practices. So, Welcome, Mike. Very happy to have you on our show. Glad to be here. <laughs> this is exciting. Yes, it is. <laughs> so maybe you can start by telling us a bit about yourself and your passion for bringing corporates and startups together. Yeah, well, you know, as you just introduced me, I've been a multiple time entrepreneur. I've spent time as an investor and often between my startup adventures, I end up either as a corporate executive in, in an acquirer or as a corporate consultant helping companies understand sort of the startup ecosystem and how to do open innovation or how to, how to engage with, um, with startups. And I guess over the years, what I've found is that, first of all, I really enjoy the process of coaching both startups and corporations. I, I find a lot of um, satisfaction mm -hmm. and intrinsic value helping both perform better. And in terms of, of their collaboration, when it works, which is not all the time, <laughs> but when it works, it creates a lot of leverage and growth for both you know, the startup and the corporation. Right? Corporations have resources and distribution channels and lots of customers and startups have a desire to grow fast and lots of, of interesting technology and ideas. And when you can bring those two things together, it ends up um, pretty good for both parties. Okay. Maybe we could start with the, the very, very basic. So why should corporates work with startups to innovate and which are the possible collaborations and each with their pros and cons? <laughs> <laughs> so you don't it's, ask tough questions. No, um, I start yeah, with no. basics and that it, yeah. they become tougher. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for corporations, right, the value proposition of working with startups, there's several. First of all, they have the newest technologies, generally speaking, at the core of their business. So they're further ahead in terms of efficiency, agility, cost of evolving products, best practices, things like this with regard to new technology. The second thing is when they get started, usually it's because they see a gap in the market where customers are being underserved in some way. And often corporations who have been in the business of manufacturing and delivering their products or services over many years, they often have blind spots to the evolving needs of the customer base mm -hmm. or of underserved customer bases. So a corporate that works with a startup is going to get the benefit of both of those two things. That's probably the primary reason for them to work with startups. Your second question about the ways to work with startups, they're manifold. You can use a startup as a vendor to do some traditional or new thing that you need to get done as a company. You can partner with them for new products and services. You can make investments in them because you want to see you know, more closely 
uh, on a day-to-day basis what they're seeing in the market, and perhaps you want the optionality of acquiring them later or participating in what you know we all hope is very fast growth. And then finally, you can consider acquiring them if you want to bring in whatever it is they're doing as a new line of business or simply as a faster way to acquire talent for your own company to evolve your overall company skills. There really isn't a best way Mm-hmm. to work with startups because it depends what you as a company are trying to achieve. But there is a best way to think about the process of working with the startups, which generally starts from the perspective of working with them as a vendor or partner and seeing how the relationship goes and how impactful what the startup is doing is to your business as a corporate and then making a decision about, you know, should we acquire the startup because it's strategic or should we just, you know, continue to scale the partnership or should we go on and try and find another startup? So it's partnering first or working with them as a vendor first is kind of a way of dating before you get married. (laughs) So I know that you said that there is not a best way for this type of collaboration, but is there one of these ways that has a higher success rate than the others? Because maybe some are a lot more challenging or how do you see this? No, there isn't. There's cautions with each of these ways of doing it. But again, as a large corporate who's ultimately trying to grow your business, going through each of these stages is what's going to generate the most success, right? Each one represents opportunity to make incremental investments and generate incremental growth. Some of the the key cautions, particularly if you are investing in startups, if you're embarking on the corporate venture capital journey, usually that's not something that you can dabble in successfully Mm -hmm. because it's not just a relationship between you and the one startup. It's also a relationship with all the other investors in that startup, with the rest of the ecosystem around that startup. And if as a corporation, you make an investment without a serious investment philosophy and thesis and organization. And I, it, you know, you don't have to have your own whole venture firm, but you need to have people dedicated to the tasks over a long period of time. If you don't do that, then often you will end up, first of all, really disappointing the startup. Mm-hmm. And second of all, probably tarnishing your brand when it comes to accessing other interesting startups or their investors who may be a source of new ideas about the startups that they invested in. So that's a caution on that side. On the acquisition side, right, there's endless reams of content out there, business school case studies about what makes for a good acquisition and a bad acquisition. Mm-hmm. The risk when you do an acquisition of a little company into a big company and you're not well set up to deal with it is, you know, you killed the golden goose, right? The acquisition doesn't turn into a business or the talent that you're acquiring finishes an earnout and leaves. So there's risks associated with all of them. Sure. So you talked about VCs. So what can corporates learn from VCs about choosing the right innovation and experiments to invest in? I mean, internally, like they have an innovation team and they come up with ideas and they say, oh, we'd like to experiment on that. Is there something that they could learn from how VCs do it? Yeah, there is. And this sort of anchors our philosophy at Upside Partners. Venture capital is an asset class, but what a lot of folks don't understand, unless they're in the middle of it, 
is that really it's not just one asset class, it's several. You look at different risk reward horizons. If you're investing at the angel stage or the seed stage or the series A stage or the, you know, the, the hyper growth stage, you as an investor, you as a VC, you look at it in different risk reward horizons. And one of the things that you're looking at there is who is going to follow on at the stage after I invest? Who did I get the deal from? And then who's going to invest after me, which may include some more money from me. And through that methodology, right, of many different investors at different stages, investing a bit more in the company as the value of the company grows, the entire value chain there ends up being a much more capital efficient way of investing in innovation. The key lesson for corporations is to look at their investments in innovation as something that needs to be phase-gated as a project achieves a certain level of success, takes a certain amount of risk off the table, and then needs more capital to grow further. That's not commonly the way that corporations invest in innovation. They'll say, you know, there's this big opportunity out here, and here's a giant bucket of money, go after it. And the problem with that is they're not measuring whether or not the investment is successful on the right criteria, the right risk and reward metrics at the earlier stages versus the later stages, right? Because no innovation project is instantly going to generate material revenues. You have to figure out how to make it work. So what corporations can learn is that they need a portfolio approach to their investing, Mm-hmm. And that they should take lots of little bets in improving their business early and then put more money into those bets that are working and stop funding those bets that aren't working. And interestingly, right, if you think about the math, the compound interest, as a corporation, you get lots of little bets that have a 2x or a 3x or a 5x return but you do them consistently, that's going to generate overall a lot better returns than one maybe hopeful 10,000x return. Okay, so what blocks most corporates from innovating effectively, according to you? Is it really the fact that they don't get out enough and don't talk enough to entrepreneurs in, in order to understand what's living in the market? Or what is the biggest block towards innovation? For the most part, it's culture and incentives. Corporations operate in quarters or in years. There's bonus structures involved in things which are are tied to the performance of the company at a steady state or a slow growth state, right? All of these sort of people issues are designed around maintaining stable growth. Mm -hmm. In the startup environment, it's do whatever you can to achieve not, you know, 5% a year growth or 10% a year growth, but 5% a week growth (laughs) or five, right? (laughs) Or 10% month over month growth. And so the business practices you use, the funding practices you use, the, the promotion practices you use, all of that is different. Now, As a company goes from early stage startup to steady stage or growth stage company, the business practices are going to change. And the idea of changing your business practices and measures every year 
is really difficult for a large corporation that has tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to organize around the enterprise. And so it's that culture and incentive structure that makes it very difficult for corporations that were founded you know, 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago to change. The good news is the business practices of entrepreneurs and VCs can be taught or learned or embraced as startup DNA and applied at a corporate scale. So which are the startup and VC-inspired tools and techniques that they can learn? Can you give some examples? Yeah, so probably the number one startup technique or entrepreneur characteristic or capability is entrepreneurs don't look for solutions. They look for problems. If they find a problem, they know they can find a way to solve it. And so, you know, the growth of a startup is usually characterized by find a problem, solve it, go on to the next problem, find another, you know, solve it, go on to the next problem, find another problem, solve it, go on to the next problem. And that might be, you know, the first set of problems might be around what the product is. The second might be around what the pricing is. The third might be around what the acquisition channels are. Who are the right partners? Okay, now how do we scale this locally? How do we scale this globally? A series of problems that if they're really good, they solve right in periods of weeks, not months or quarters or years. When you get good as a corporation at identifying and solving problems in little tiny bites, what you find is you learn a lot more about how the market is evolving than if you do it by virtue of doing research studies or talking to consultants or these kinds of things. You're getting ex experiential data, not predictive data. That's probably the number one capability that you can, as a corporation, You need to learn to experiment fast and cheap so you can generate data about how the world is evolving faster than the other guys. When you look at a company like Amazon, they do this very, very well as part of their DNA. Mm -hmm. Startups do this very well as part of their DNA. The more clear you can be on the problems, the faster you'll be at finding the right solution and then moving on to the next problem. A follow-up question on that, because you say corporates hide problems instead of finding solutions for problems. But could you not also say, on the other hand, that corporates don't try to look for problems, that they find the wrong problems to solve? I don't know. Is that stupid to say that? No, no, it's not, it's not stupid at all. And I wouldn't even call them the wrong. I might not call them the wrong problems. If I say I want to maintain my 5% year-over-year growth rate, That's a, an objective, but do you then go, you know, two or three layers deep to find what are the key drivers of that growth rate? And in fact, right, if I find five drivers, can I not make a 5% improvement in every single one of those every year and achieve a multiplicative growth rate as a result of it, whether it's in a cost-saving side or, or a new revenue side? In digital leaders, they want to maintain growth rates that are far in excess of what the average corporation wants to achieve. And as a result, they look for these problems that would impede them from that growth rate. 
Now, when, when you're a big company, if you save, you know, 20 minutes of every single employee's time around your, you know, 100,000 employees, it's a material cost savings, but that may not lead to the kinds of growth that you want. You know, have you gone from saving 20 minutes of time a day to saving two hours or even better coming up with a, a solution that allows the same people to serve 20 times as many customers as they currently can? That's how a startup's going to think as opposed to a corporate is going to mm-hmm. think. So I'm going to play uh, advocate of the devil here. But So you talk about growth rates and that startups tend to think, uh, because they have to, of course, think a lot bigger than corporates about growth. But is there not a limit to how much a huge international company can keep growing? There may be, but that becomes a question of, are we in the same business that we were in, mm-hmm. or should we be in the same business that we were in 10 years ago, 20 years ago, right? When you look at, I mean, w- could we agree that Alibaba or Amazon are big international companies? Sure. Huh? <laughs> They're maintaining pretty high growth rates compared mm-hmm. to many others, right? Sure. To uh-huh. old school companies. Would you have said that Amazon is a, is a technology company? No. No, not at, not at first. Now, yes, not at first. They were a commerce company. Uh-huh. But what they had was this problem of they couldn't evolve their code and their product offering as fast as the market was demanding. And so they, you know, in, I think it was in 2004 or 2005, something like that, Jeff Bezos said, look, everyone has to use the same methodology to allow our applications to talk to each other. And in fact, if you don't use the same APIs to allow them to talk to each other, you're fired. So he wanted to solve the problem of we couldn't iterate our code fast enough. What happened as a result of that was AWS, Amazon Web Services. Were they a technology company? No, they were a technology first company, but to solve their own internal problem, and to create a, not a 10% improvement, but a 100% improvement in their own performance, they came up with a product that you wouldn't expect them originally to have. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they're maintaining their growth. I, I really love that example of finding the right problems. We have a local example of that. For instance, also in Belgium, there's this company, a traditional building company, Aertsen, and they had really trouble to hire these large cranes for their building sites. It could only be done by phone. And so they invented an Uber-like platform for hiring large building materials, and even their competitors are on it now. So it's, of course, a lot more small scale, but it, it's actually the same principle. It's, it's, it's exactly finding, finding principle. problems. Yeah. Right. It's what, you know, the assets that we always thought we had may not be the assets which are most relevant in the future. Mm-hmm. It, it may be other things. And, and often one of the best ways to change the culture of a company is to start with the incremental innovation Right, Because the big problem isn't actually finding growth opportunities. The big problem, as I said before, is culture. Mm-hmm. And so you have to build the capabilities and the culture within the company so that it can succeed in the future. If you pick an incremental problem and you say, I don't want an incremental answer to this problem. I want a disruptive answer to this problem. You get something like what this construction company invented. Mm-hmm. You know, will crane rental become a material part of this company's revenue in the future? 
very well may. But the other nice thing about picking incremental innovation is you can say to the person who's responsible for renting cranes, I don't really care how you solve the problem. But if you cut the time it takes for us to rent a crane by 90%, you're getting a big bonus. Yeah. It was, I think, I don't remember because I'm not good with numbers, but I, it, it was huge. It was like 70 or 75%, I think, I think they, in, they saved in time. And in fact, it really started as an internal innovation because they wanted to do it faster. And it's really true. And then they, they decided, oh, but other people could use this too. So it, it really went that way. So there you go. And you're right, it started with something, right? Someone was not paid to, quote, innovate. Mm -hmm. no, Someone no. was paid to improve the performance of the portfolio they were exist they were managing today. Mm -hmm. You avoid that problem of innovation being side of desk, and you make it center of desk. So we talked about the things that blocked innovation in corporates, but what blocks startups from innovating effectively? Is it something different than with corporates? Because of course they have also very different cultures. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard for me to point to something and say mm -hmm. that startups have a hard time innovating, but they often, much more often than corporates do, have a hard time generating a return for themselves or their investors, right? 99% of startups fail mm -hmm. or fail to generate a return. Mm -hmm. What I think most often gets in their way is they think they know the right way, right? If, if a, an entrepreneur goes out and says, I've got this amazing idea because financial services is moving to the mobile phone. And then they get stuck on whatever it is that they first build and they forget to get market feedback on that. That's the kind of time that they're going to fail. Mm -hmm that's when you know their product is not going to evolve. A great entrepreneur instead says, you know, I'm going to this big future. I don't know exactly the right way that I'm going to get there, but I'm going to be really, really good at testing my ideas out. I'm going to test lots of ideas fast and cheap, and I'm going to iterate, and I'm going to find the right way there. You know, it's interesting because an entrepreneur has to have a certain level of arrogance to think they can change the world. <laughs> And then they have to have a certain level of humility to let the world teach them how it wants to be changed. What are your top favorite stories? So can you give some examples of maybe unexpected collaborations between corporates and startups? I'm not going to use the names of the companies. Mm -hmm. No. Okay. But we were doing um, some work with a large financial institution that lends money for automobiles. And the business did everything that they did offline. They did it through, you know, um, uh, automobile dealers. And they realized that they needed to do something online and they needed to do it fast. And so they started going down this road of trying to replicate the same kind of identity checking online that they did in the dealer channel. Right. Because, you know, when you go and get a, a car, you're sitting there in the dealership and then you get the loan in the dealership and the dealership and the lender and everyone knows that the borrower is who they say they are. Mm -hmm. What we worked with them on was trying first to identify the problem. Was the problem actually to have the same level of identity checking online as they did in the dealership? 
And what we found was that wasn't really the problem. The problem was to prevent fraud at the same level that you can prevent it in the dealership. And the, the identity checking was just the way that they did this. And so we introduced them to a startup, which was an e-commerce fraud prevention company, right? And what, what this startup's business is, is helping e-commerce websites prevent fraud when you buy diamonds or, or you know, Rolex watches or this kinds of thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, products which are most more expensive than, you know, many cars. And the interesting thing about it was that for the end customer, being checked that you are who you say you are had nothing to do with filling out forms and presenting IDs and and all of these things. It was done tacitly in the background so that the customer experience was this beautiful e-commerce experience with no new friction involved. So the collaboration was really interesting because, first of all, the startup at the time, while they had been working with lots of of e-commerce companies, they hadn't worked with a financial institution. Mm -hmm. And so they learned what issues that financial institutions have. And for the financial institution, they had a whole other way to think, thanks to this startup, about what a great online lending experience could be like. Um, so you, you talked about this earlier. I think you even called it a marriage. <laughs> so how do corporates find the right external startup partner? What should they, of course, right, it's never right. You, you have to test it, of course. But what should they look out for? Well, I guess there's two sides to that question. There's how do you get ready to find startup partners? And then, you know, how do you actually go find them? Mm-hmm. To me, the first thing needs to be, what's the problem? What's the business challenge that you're trying to address? And then sort of breaking that out into component parts. I'll give you a simple example. If I'm a bank and I want to increase my loan production by you know 5% without changing my underwriting standards, there's lots of ways to do that, right? That you can bring more potential customers into the top of the funnel You can improve the number of customers that you agree to give a loan to. You could recycle those customers who you said no to previously, can help them to improve their credit score and then bring them back to buy a loan. So there's a whole bunch of drivers to increase loan production by 5% without changing underwriting standards. But I'm being clear on the problem, not on the solution. Mm -hmm. Now I can go out to the startup ecosystem and say, who could help solve my problem? And what I'm going to get back is lots of different ideas about how I could solve my problem. Well, I'm learning something just from doing that. The first thing is stating the problem. The second thing is recognizing that you know a startup has a much shorter life cycle or a much higher frequency life cycle mm-hmm. than a corporation. If you have not set up to be able to run tests with a startup quick and cheap, the startup will have moved on. The best startup will have moved on. The worst startups will have died in that period <laughs> of time. Mm-hmm. So you need, you need to create a streamlined way of engaging with the, with the startup ecosystem. And then one of the things that we see many corporations do is they look for exclusivity from day one. And the best startups will not give you, right? they'll just walk away. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, if you decide that you want to work with a startup and you want exclusivity, buy it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Just acquire it. <laughs> so those are the things that you need to design for when you, when you want to go work with a startup. Mm-hmm. 
On the startup side, frankly, we often see startups that don't understand the internal dynamics, that a corporation isn't just one monolithic thing. It's tens or hundreds or thousands of people who all have their own issues that they have to deal with, their own bonus structure, their own objectives, and that you don't get to sell to just one person. You have to interact with lots of people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that startups don't always expect. All right. Now that you have you know, a, a reasonably streamlined process, you know what problems you want to solve, then you have to actually go find the startups. And there's lots of avenues for doing that. One of the things we find most effective is when in some fashion, a company publishes their challenge to the world and says, you know, to solve this problem, it's worth this much money to do a test and this much money in order to scale it, right? We think it can have this kind of impact in the business. What that's going to do is naturally attract entrepreneurs who want to help solve the problem and with a different you know, perspective than you may have. You want to do it broadly. The thing that venture investors do well is they talk to lots of entrepreneurs about problems and solutions. So as a corporate, if you're putting it out broadly and you have a, an efficient way to filter your companies, you're going to learn a ton as you go through this process. And then it's like, okay, so where do we publish? And sharing your problem through accelerators, through venture capitalists, doing you know, online competitions, as long as you're willing to publish your problems, you can find startups um, who want to help you solve them. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of these platforms where people can publish these problems? As a single platform, right, mm -hmm. there's a company that's based out of the UK called F6, like numeral 6S. Mm -hmm. They're fairly efficient at doing that. Okay. Um, if you are a large corporation, however, you can't depend only on one avenue to find you the best solutions. You probably need to begin an ongoing marketing campaign about How do you interact with the startup ecosystem? Do some research and find the venture capitalists that operate in and around your space and develop relationships with them, either having them come in and talk to you or making investments in their funds. You may end up wanting to set up your own venture fund. You may want to sponsor accelerators like 500 Startups does this. Um, they have corporate sponsors, um, Techstars has corporate sponsors. Um, mm -hmm. Startup Bootcamp has corporate sponsors. For the corporation, it's both an ability to project that they're open for business with startups, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it's often an opportunity for their team members to learn how the startup ecosystem works. Well, thank you so much for um, all your advice. I just have one last question, maybe, for our fintech listeners out there. So which fintech trends of the moment are you most excited about? So which technologies and trends should they keep an eye on? A very, very large percentage of investment in fintech over the last, call it, 10 years has been in changing the retail customer experience, retail you know, savings or lending or wealth management or brokerage. To me, the business-to-business -business space is vastly underinvested. One way to think about it is if you're in a big corporation, you've, over the last 10, 20 years, you've gotten really wonderful, you know, bright, shiny new tools. If you're in the sales department or you're in the marketing department or you're you know, on the logistics side, right? There's all these great software as a service companies that do wonderful things and increase your productivity or increase your sales. 
But if you're the CFO or you're the financial manager of the company, you're pretty much still working with spreadsheets and phone calls. So both on the corporate side, that's a huge opportunity for new efficiencies. Mm -hmm. And on the banking side, it's a way to change the relationship and, and more deeply embed with your end customers. And whether you're talking about you know, corporate lending or payments or capital formation, it's pretty much all the same. All, most of that stuff is not very modern in the way the technology works. Mm -hmm. And that's a giant problem set with a much larger volume than consumer that needs to be or has the opportunity to be modernized. I think the other one, I'll tell you one other one, is Apple launching its credit card and Uber launching its savings and lending programs. I think you're going to see more and more digital leaders create better relationships with their constituencies by adding financial services to their mix. Um, mm -hmm. Whether they do it themselves or they partner with banks, still to be seen, but it is, um, is going to happen. And like just recently, you saw J.P. Morgan Chase launch a whole infrastructure to help digital companies add financial services to their mix. So B2B and embedding financial services into other products and services. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the NextWorks Innovation Talks today, Mike. I really enjoyed our conversation. And um, have a nice day. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us. And follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events. <laughs>